If the spring packages to Florida and the Bahamas are all sold out, the takeaway has found an out-of-the-way tourist-free spot that's quite literally a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. Exoplanet 314.02. Just a few light years away, you'll never want to come home. You can't. Here on Kepler Object of Interest 314.02, you're a long way from Earth. Over 200 light years. Love sunshine? One hemisphere of the planet always faces its star. But if you're in the mood for serious moonlight, the other hemisphere is always after dark. Like base jumping or hang gliding? KOI 314.02's low gravity allows some spectacular heights. KOI 314.02 is yours. Tickets available in 300 years, plus or minus one century. The dream of living on another world is as old as civilization. But for the first time, humans have a destination outside of the solar system. Actually, a few million or more. We're called exoplanets. Scientists are actually starting to concretely calculate what it would take to visit planetary bodies discovered by the Kepler telescope in just the last few years. This week at The Takeaway, we are hearing that science directly from the Earth-based explorers at NASA. If you listen to Dr. Sarah Ballard, the NASA Carl Sagan fellow at the University of Washington, talk about Kepler Object of Interest 314.02, that's K-O-I 314.02, you might think she's actually been there. This is a system with two planets. When you start approaching the star in your starship, right away you would see that the star is very different from the sun. It looks much smaller uh, to your eye and much redder. Your destination is... O2, the second planet, um, you see when you come closer to it, you can't really see the surface of the planet. This is a very small planet, and yet it has a really, really thick atmosphere. So as you're diving down through the atmosphere, you look up, you know, hoping to catch glimpses of that red host star. You start going down and down into the atmosphere, and pretty soon you lose sight of the star altogether, which isn't to say that it's dark. The star's light is still permeating through the atmosphere, but because the way that wavelengths of light are scattering, you start to see more of a red haze. All right, um, so let's let's hold up there for just a second. As we're beginning to explore, what questions do we need to ask about the habitability that weren't answered by the uh, exoplaneteers from their mm. uh, vantage point, you know, many, many light years away, and what do we have to ask as explorers? Uh, you know, look for this. Uh, I mean, we, mm. we, we, we need oxygen, obviously, but what are the more subtle questions? What I would want to know is the atmospheric composition. You know, I would want someone to bring back a sample of the air. That's not only uh, for knowledge of whether I could breathe the air today. It's um, the O3, it's the ozone in our own atmosphere that prevents a lot of really damaging um, ultraviolet radiation from hitting the surface. An ultraviolet um, particle of light could be strong enough in some cases to just break apart a single DNA. Coming in on that low-mass star, um, uh, if I were an astronomer looking out the window, realizing that I was about to land on a planet around one of the smallest type of stars, I would remember that those kind of stars are active for billions of years, you know, evolutionary timescales. By active, I mean throwing off um, flares of unimaginable power. I mean, we don't imagine them today. The type of flares our sun puts off that disable geosynchronous satellites or something like that, they're nothing compared to flares from this star. I would be curious, you know, will the atmosphere shield me? And especially for life on this planet, how did, under that red haze, 
was photosynthesis ever able to evolve? Have creatures on this planet managed to find a way to convert light into energy in a way that um, plants on the Earth require, you know, a full spectrum of light, much more light from the rainbow? These hypothetical plants and animals are only getting very red light. And so I would, you know, I, of course, the first thing I would do if I landed there was to look around to see if I saw a bug. Of course. Um, <laughs> if I saw a bug, <laughs> if I saw a bug, I would be so excited. And then and then, of course, I would wonder um, about its relative size. You know, I would be curious about the evolution of life under different gravitational circumstances. This planet is is not dense like the Earth. So one of the things that I think would be first impressed upon you as the staircase of the <laughs> spacecraft unfolded toward the solid ground, right. um, is the mountains loom impossibly large. The reason why mountain ranges on the Earth, they're never allowed to get too high. The gravity of the Earth pulls them back down. You can't have any one structure uh, on planet Earth which exceeds the gravitational tug of our planet. On this planet, the gravity is so much less, you can feel it in your own body. And without that strain, that like strong resisting gravity, they've stayed very, very high. And creatures could probably evolve to be larger. And, and plants could evolve to be larger. You know, I would wonder whether there was something that nature selects for there. Would you want to live in a place like this or do you just want to be able to see it? I would never want to live on a planet like this. That would be tough. I, I think of this particular planet more as a vacation planet than anything and like an extreme vacation planet. You know how some people go on like like ext- extreme like mountain climbing excursions and like extreme parasailing. That's what this planet has to offer. You know, you could climb mountains that are much higher than anything you could climb on the earth. You know, it would be views like from a plane how high you would be on that mountain. So I did um, KOI 314.02 is the t-shirt. That's right. Yeah, right. I parasailed KOI 314.02, right? <laughs> and all I got was a stupid t-shirt. <laughs> Sarah Ballard is a NASA Carl Sagan fellow at the University of Washington. So would you travel to another planet if it meant you couldn't come back? One listener writes from Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, I'd love to travel into space with or without returning, so long as whatever contributions I was able to make were meaningful in our discovery of alien planets. Or Philip Martin, a reporter at our partner WGBH, tweets, if I can survive Boston winters, why not Kepler 438b? Little Rock, Arkansas, no, I like my life, family, friends, and cats. Hi, this is Solomina from Westchester. The idea of space travel absolutely fascinates me, and I love the experience, but I positively would not even consider it if there was no chance of my returning. My family is just too special to me. The thought of missing birthdays, weddings, and even funerals is just too sad of a thought to consider permanently departing from this planet. This is Sumner from Quincy, Massachusetts. I just wanted to say that it's ridiculous that we're going to try to inhabit another planet. Earth is the best planet we have, and we really need to look into resources to help keep this planet the way it is and inhabitable. But from Florida, oh yeah, I would bring a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and a recipe for pan-galactic gargle blasters. The effect of which is like having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. And Portland, Oregon says, no thanks, there are plenty of things to learn on this planet. Hi, this is Karma from New York, New York. I would not travel into space on a one-way ticket, but there are a number of people I'd like to anonymously volunteer for that mission. What's the web address? You're not the only one, Carmen, to volunteer other people for that never-return trip to an exoplanet. 
What's the web address? Well, you can just join the conversation at 8778MyTake. Tweet back to us at The Takeaway or just follow me at Jay Hockenberry. I'm on this planet, but considering millions of exoplanets. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.